This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. The 269th episode of the podcast finds us talking about fly tying again. So I can't imagine that there is more than 5% of the podcasts and probably across the Casting Across website back catalog of content that is specifically about fly tying. And that's for one reason in particular. I'm not great at it. So I tie flies. I tie the flies that I need. I probably tie about 75% of the flies that I fish. Uh, and the other 25%, the ones that look good, are the ones that I buy. Uh, but I certainly would not post pictures of flies that I tied online, and uh, selling them would be a great uh, misfortune for the person who was fool enough to pay money for them. But they work for me. They work for my kids. They work for the folks that I take fishing. Um, and really, I, I think that that gives me the perspective of what I want to talk about today, which is how to tie flies in a way that is not discouraging to you, um, but that is still going to get you uh, on the vice and on the water with things that you produce. So that's not going to be the title of the podcast. That would be a little bit too uh, too wordy. Wouldn't fit in most, uh, most applications, but that's essentially what we're going to be talking about today. Of course, this is this is all with a caveat that you should be a better fly tire. I mean, I should be given as much time as I've put into it and as much uh, resources as I've had made available to me. But it's just not something that I have really spent the time to refine and hone. Um, I've gotten really good at tying like you know egg patterns. Like I'm I'm pretty good at that. Um, but uh, th there's a lot of patterns that I should be better at tying that I'm not. And uh, that's that's really on me. But that doesn't necessarily have to be your limitation. I mean, some of the folks that I've I've spent time with, uh, that have invested time in in showing me things, uh, are phenomenal tires. Uh, at the fly fishing show in the coming uh, month, some of the people I'm be hanging out with are just remarkably talented fly tires. And you're probably listening to this right. 
right now. So you know who you are. Uh, but uh, what I want to talk about today, again, is how to basically dumb down or uh, limit your fly tying in a way that will get you results uh, on the vice and ultimately on the water and get you results in your confidence. This is what I have found myself doing more and more so that I can actually begin to make those incremental steps towards having a more diverse fly box of, of flies that I tie, as well as uh, more fun but behind the vice. So I'll give you a very quick primer or example as to why this is an acceptable approach. All right. So some of the most productive flies that are out there are flies that involve one material and thread and a hook. One material, thread, and a hook. So uh, there is the aforementioned egg pattern. There is the San Juan worm. Uh, there is the mop fly. There is the waltz worm. And um, there is a and the Griffith snap, which I, I know you can tie with, with two materials. You probably should. But those are four flies that take two materials. But in every one of them, you're learning valuable skills that that you can hone. And so you can tie a bad waltz worm or you can tie a good waltz worm. Uh, you can tie a bad uh, Griffith snap. You could tie a good Griffith snap. But here's the amazing thing is that a bad waltz worm will catch fish. A bad uh, San Juan worm will catch fish. Uh, a, a bad uh, Griffith snat is going to catch the most discerning Spring Creek brown trout. And here's why. They're still going to look like dead or dying bugs. Remember, that's what we're tying. We're tying things that imitate dead or dying bugs or maybe even fish. And if you're tying something that imitates a fish, you have even more uh, flexibility in how ugly the thing looks uh, because uh, you're going to be pulling it through the water anyway. So. This is step one, is choose simple flies. Choose flies that only require thread and one material, just to start. Because one, they're going to be fishable, and two, you're going to be learning skills that matter. So as simple things as, well, like say, say with a waltz worm, which is basically just um, a, a thread on a hook or dubbing on a hook. Um, it's, it's very, very simple. This is a pattern where you have to, you, you, all you have to worry about is how do you put dubbing on thread? What is the technique that you use with your fingers? What, how do you use the thread? How do you use wax? Where do you position both of your hands? How much thread do you have hanging out of your bobbin? All of those things are, are things you can focus on with this pattern. You're not having to worry about segmentation. So a pattern as simple as a hare's ear nymph requires you to consider segmentation. So you have what is essentially the head and the body of the fly, um, thorax and abdomen, whatever you want to call it. Um, but because you have that wing case, that that uh, you know hare's ear nymph wing case going from behind the eye of the fly uh, of the hook all the way kind of to a third of, of the, uh, the hook shank, um, you have to think about how much thread you put on there. And really, once you get to a certain point, if you have too much or not enough, you kind of in a, a weird spot um, because you're thinking about doing that all over again. So it's not the biggest deal, but if this is something that you're learning or struggling with, then tying a waltz worm, uh, starting at the back of the fly, identifying that place where you start. You don't want that dubbing to start uh, halfway down the uh, the bend of the hook. You certainly don't want it to start, um, you know, an entire hook point's length in front of the hook point uh, up on the shank of the hook. But trying to find that spot and then focusing on how do you apply the dubbing to the thread. How do you create that taper so it isn't just this block of dubbing on a hook, but it has a nice 
gentle taper, or it could be an extreme taper. It, 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 both are fine, but something is probably is, is certainly better than nothing. So l- developing that skill and then learning how you can wrap without that dubbing noodle becoming unfrayed and starting to kind of go, uh, you know, stay straight up from the hook shank while your thread continues to wrap. Learning how to do that, learning how to uh, continue to twist that. You, you can see me, I'm at my desk and I'm twisting my fingers like I'm dubbing a, uh, a thread uh, just incessantly. But, you know, learning how to do that. And then all you got to do is get to the head of the fly. And that's it. Now, of course, there's other pieces of it. There is learning how to then tie that off, learning how to maybe remove a little bit of extra material, learning how to create a nice head, learning how to maybe tease out that dubbing. But those are all small incremental steps. And guess what? That fly that you produce, whether you leave it as is, you put a bead head on it, um, you maybe you know add in a little bit of sparkle, you put some flash in it, whatever it may be, you know those are small, simple, incremental steps that you can add to your fly tying where you're still going to have a very functional fly. Bare minimum, you're going to catch bluegill on it. You know what? You're probably going to catch really picky trout on it too if you fish it well and get it at the right depth and all of that sort of stuff. So that's kind of step one or uh, idea number one. The second thing is kind of a corollary idea to this, and it comes down to taking away the hard stuff. Okay, so maybe if you're a fly tying purist, this is the most offensive thing to you, but you know this is this is training wheels fly tying. And it's the kind of thing that I still do on patterns that I am capable of tying in a more complicated matter that I've really come to just not care as much about. So uh, everyone looks at a cattail dry fly and they just look at the thing and it's beautiful. And if you can't appreciate the value in that, then you, you, I don't know, I don't want to be too critical, but. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's it's the right way to fly fish. <laughs> I'm just I'm joking. But uh, a Catskill dry fly, the perfect proportions, the delicate nature of it, it's it's awesome. Absolutely love it. Um, and so you get this book when you start to fly fish or you start to try to tie flies, and you have like a um, you know pick a fly, a Hendrickson, right? And you're looking at the thing, and uh, or a March Brown, and you're just thinking I, I'm going to tie that, and I'm going to have a whole fly box full of them. I'm going to have them in you know eights and tens and twelves and fourteens, and they're going to all be just perfect, and it's going to be this awesome fly box, right? Um, and, you know this, the blooming olive that the fish will all look at and say, you know what? I know that's fake, but it's too good to pass up. So um, he- here's what. The, the issue is you have all those small components getting the tail to sit right, look right, not fan out, not splay out when you tie that in. The same issue that we talked about before with the woolly worm of getting the dubbing to be nice and fine and and tie that in at a good taper and not be too bulky. And then um, put in your wings and put in your hackle. And as you put in your hackle to make sure your wings don't get wacky and then to tie the head of the fly. Okay. So in that equation, what is the uh, one uh, component you can eliminate and it still be a viable imitation of the insect that you are trying to replicate? I would say the wings. Some people say, oh no, you can't. It, it, the, the wings are vital. Okay. That's, that's it, to be that fly in an accurate way, to be in a competition, to be in a shadow box. Uh, absolutely. And do fish pick flies with wings? I'm sure there's plenty of times that they do. But if you want to figure out those other components I mentioned before, getting the tail right, getting the body right, getting the hackle right, and being able to finish that fly, um, then you can take those wings out and you can still have a very functional fly. Now, does this mean that you should stop there? Honestly, if you do stop there and that's the kind of dry flies that you tie, 
great. So be it. Catch all the fish in the world. Um, if you fish well, if you cast well, if you know where to put your fly, then you're probably going to catch more fish than somebody who is a better fly tire, but not as good of an angler. So that would be one example of eliminating or reducing uh, a, a difficult fly component. Uh, the same thing, like I said before, if you are uh, tying nymphs um, and, and things like wing cases are tricky, although that's not really a tricky component, but again, we all have our different struggles, right? Um, or, or body wraps, how many thread, uh, thread wraps or how many um, uh, wire wraps, things like that. And, and again, you might say that's the simplest thing in the world, but for some people, that's just they, their brain has a hard time doing it. Their fingers have a hard time doing it. And so if you eliminate that step and you just get, okay, I can get the body down. I can get the fly looking like a bug. And for so many nymphs, I mean, for goodness sakes, think about, about a lot of the nymphs that are incredibly, incredibly popular. It's wire on a hook. Um, and you might say, you know what, I'm going to put wire on a hook. I'm not going to necessarily tie a wing case. I'm not going to put in something at the head. I'm going to put a bead on and I'm going to tie wire on it. I'm going to make that look nice before I start to add more. I'm not, I'm not going to necessarily use any fancy epoxy. I'm just going to make this a fly that's fishable. You, you build up your confidence in those steps. You build up your confidence in those pieces and you're going to have a fly that fishes and you're going to have the foundation for doing it the next time. Uh, this is a much more uh, approachable and a much more sustainable model than burning yourself out by trying to tie a fly that has 15 different components that each cost between three and $15 for a package that's going to take you 25 minutes to try to put one together. And if you get one aspect wrong, it's going to trickle down and cause everything else down the line to have problems. And ultimately you're going to be discouraged. You're going to be broke and you're not going to want to tie those flies anymore. Just pare it back, make it simpler. So those are, the, those are the first two things. One, uh, choose simple flies that work. Secondly, don't be afraid to eliminate components. Don't be afraid to eliminate components. The third thing that I would suggest is to incorporate elements into your tying that cover a multitude of tying sins. Okay, so here's a great example of that. The, the fish helmets, uh, like the sculpin helmets that you can buy, um, or popper bodies. Or even cone heads for for uh, for flies. These all do a great job of hiding your messes, hiding how you didn't really finish a fly well, how you might have a bunch of materials that you really didn't taper in well. So that's like a situation with a popper, okay? And again, who who cares? As long as that popper head stays on, who cares what's underneath it? Some might say, oh, it'll cause it to list this way. It will cause the popper head to not sit well because it's on a bit of a taper. Okay. That may be true at the, uh, you know, the, the, the tenth or hundredth place of, of, of the decimal points, but by and large, uh, it's still going to work well. So, you know, when you tie a popper and you incorporate a couple of different feathers, maybe some fur, maybe some legs, maybe some, uh, some flash, whatever it might be, the best uh, possible way to do it is to tie in those components one after another in a way that that shank of that hook has a nice level, uh, um, uh, you know, body for, for lack of a better term that you then slide your popper head on, whether you're using uh, a rubber or a foam or a cork that makes it go on easiest and it makes it stay in place the best. However, if you were to have something a little bit wonky in there, you can still jam that cork or jam that foam head on there. And it's it, it, assuming you're using some sort of adhesive, a glue, it's going to stay there and it's probably going to fish really, really well. Um, 
And so that's one way to say, okay, I now have a box full of poppers that I know that underneath that big foam head, uh, there's a lot of ugly stuff. Things did not get put where they were supposed to go, uh, but it's still going to work. I mean, I've I've owned houses where I, I'm doing renovation work and I'm thinking, you know, these people had zero comprehension of how and where to run wires, how to where to, where to run pipes, but you know, it was done safely and everything works. And even though it doesn't make any sense and it's kind of ugly behind these walls, once I put the drywall up, it doesn't really matter. Um, so it might not be my preferred way to run wire and run to, to run, you know, supply pipelines for, for water, but it worked for them. And as long as I knew where it is and, and as long as it works, that's fine. The same thing is true for what you hide under the body of a popper. So this allows you to tie a bunch of flies. And, you know, again, you may just be totally content with leaving things ugly always, or as you tie, you say, you know what, it actually is cleaner, more efficient, and, and not a big deal to make things a little bit neater, even though I'm just going to cover it up. Uh, when it comes to streamers, uh, the same thing is true with a big sculpin helmet. So um, that that is, you know, basically a hard weighted uh, um, piece that you slide up into a uh, on the top of a hook. Um, it, it is a version of a cone head, for lack of a better term. Um, but the same thing you, you could use with a cone head. Uh, so by having that cone head, which is applied first before you start tying as opposed to the sculpin helmet or the fish head or whatever it may be, which goes on after. Um, and there's, there's saltwater versions of those that I use all the time because I really struggle. Personally, I really struggle with some of the synthetics um, uh, and and also with the natural materials of getting that head of that fly to just look nice and neat, especially when I'm using a really strong, fine thread uh, to tie my saltwater flies. It's, they're, they're really bulky. And so if I can pop a little head on there or put some big eyes and a lot of epoxy, then it really covers it up and it makes it look better. And in my mind, it's going to be more uh, durable. Um, but getting back to the cone head, you know, the cone head goes on first. So that still will hide the multitude of tying sins because as you just tie up to that head, really a lot of what you do in the finishing of that fly is just going to slide up in that concave portion of that cone. So it does hide stuff. Um, so that is, you, you need a little bit more accuracy with that. But if you're using some sort of helmet or head on the fly, um, then you're able to kind of make things ugly and then just pop that thing on there. Of course, you do have to make sure that you leave enough space to do that. Uh, and, if, and if you don't, now you've basically ruined a fly because there's no way to fit that head on there and it's going to be ugly and it's not going to fish the way it's supposed to fish. So there's always going to be some uh, margin of error where if you if you exceed that, you, you're, you are going to have a problem and it's going to you know not fish well and ultimately uh, you're, you're going to have to learn from that mistake. But better to do that on a fly that you have a really good chance of putting together than on one that is going to be problematic because it's, it's frustrating to try to get everything to lay down perfectly. So that's so the three things that we've talked about so far. Uh, firstly, tie simple flies, tie flies that help you figure out uh, the different strategies and the different techniques, but still produce fishable flies, things that you can build from. Secondly, as you get to more complicated patterns, don't be afraid to eliminate optional components. And again, asterisks all over the place, you know, the, the, the purest fly tires, it is what it is. Uh, and, and thirdly, uh, you're going to try to find patterns that allow you to cover up some of your mess, a lot of patterns that allow you to put things on and over your flies uh, that will still make them fishable, but will cover up some things. So those are the first three things that I wanted to talk about. Last one, uh, well, it's it's kind of a, a cop out, but it's very, very helpful. And it is to take a fly tying class. 
Uh, I've said this before, uh, the, the greatest strides I've made in my fly tying is when someone has been there to be hands-on with my, my, my hands or my fly or my vice or my tools and to show me the, the slight things that I could do to make things better, how to hold things, the amount of pressure to apply. And you think, why didn't I figure this out? Well, you're not going to get that level of, um, of, of insight from a video or uh, even from a, from a book. So to have someone on site and helping you is incredibly valuable. So whether that be just another angler who is a few steps ahead of you, or whether it be professional, and I would absolutely recommend that if you have the resources and there's something around you, uh, seek that out. A fly tying night for your local TU chapter, your local uh, fly shop, or just a group of guys that meet at a brewery or something, go do that. If you have a fly fishing show where you're able to go and take a class, whether it be uh, a paid class or one of the free classes, to get that sort of insight is incredibly helpful. And that will help you maybe iron out that one aspect. I mean, maybe maybe you can tie a very nice looking dry fly, but the wings are giving you trouble. So maybe just having them help you put those wings on or, or helping you, you know, spread out materials for, for a streamer or helping you dub uh, some, some more complicated materials or how, how do you incorporate the synthetic material into your fly? You're, you're used to tying with naturals or whatever it may be. Having them show you that, talk through that with you is a great next step in helping you solve that next problem so that you can then get proficient with that and then work on the next problem. And honestly, that's what makes fly fishing and so many other things, but specifically fly tying uh, enjoyable, is that you're solving problems. You're not going to, on the first day you get that new fly tying kit, tie that perfect um, you know, Adams and that perfect uh, pheasant tail nymph and that perfect muddler all in the same day. Even though the picture on the front of the box shows someone happily producing those things, uh, each one requires a diverse group of skills. They're all just variations on a theme, but they require time, patience, practice. And so if you can, if you can get there faster by tying simpler flies to start, by cutting down on some of the components, by utilizing with tools and components and materials that will hide your mistakes. And lastly, by seeking help, then I think that you have done well and you're well on your way to not just tying flies, but catching fish with the flies that you have tied. Any other insight, feedback, input along these lines, don't hesitate to reach out. Matthew at castingacross.com. I would love to hear from you. This week on the website, the first article was called Three Sets of Three for the New Year. Three Sets of Three for the New Year. So uh, another holiday post. And in this one, I actually did a couple of cool things. So uh, one of them was I gave my top three fish very little description on what they were. Maybe I'll come back uh, in a couple of weeks and run through those on the podcast and kind of riff on those three fish. Um, and my top three resolution recommendations, I've written entire articles in the past about, you know, fly fishing resolutions. And again, I don't think this is something that you, you know, sign an oath in blood to fulfill these things, but they're just fun goals to set for yourself in angling and in life for the coming year. And then my top three articles as voted by you, um, on the website, not voted, but read. Uh, and so it is one about fly fishing show, one about bootfoot waders, and one about a brand new fly rod that I got that is actually like a 60-year-old fly rod. So that is what came out on Monday. Wednesday's article was called Top Fly Fishing Books for Kids. So one of the uh, static articles on casting across, it's a, a directory as it were, is fly fishing books. Anything that I even just mention in passing, 
uh, have a quick review on. It goes into the hopper of fly fishing books. And there are a few kids books on there, but this week I put four great fly fishing books for kids um, on the website. You can go check those out. There's links to Amazon. You probably find them at your local fly shop or your local bookstore or order them directly from the publisher if that is more of your speed. But uh, there's four books on there that I that my kids have enjoyed. And I think that any young person in your life who is either interested in fly fishing or you want to get them interested in fly fishing would absolutely be interested in reading about. This week's recommendation on the podcast is one uh, that you show me some grace for not giving a recommendation last year or last year. I guess it was last year because 2024 now, but the last week's podcast, I didn't give a formal recommendation. That's the first time that has happened in 260 eight episodes. Uh, and so I, I kind of alluded to making a, res, uh, a resolution. Uh, and, and I've done that before and my last podcast of the year. Um, so I'm just going to say that that allusion counted. But as a formal segment, it didn't make it in. This week's kind of ties into, a little pun there, uh, This the, the, the subject matter of the podcast this week. And it's called Fly Tying for Everyone. So I know I said um, that uh, a, a book is not going to be the same as a live class. Um, but here's one of the great things. If you get fly tying for everyone from Tim Camisa, which came out in 2021, so it's a couple of years old, which is a great book for, for getting the basics and then really using those basics to create some pretty complicated flies. Um, but he really does a great job of walking you through how once you get these essential skills, you can create some really good, good flies. It's a 170 pages, great photography. Excellent explanations. Tim's one of the the, the great fly tires on uh, on the internet these days. Um, I would suggest picking this book up, and then if you happen to be at one of the fly fishing show stops, taking one of the classes from Tim. And so you get that continuity between what he sounds like in the book, what he sounds like on the YouTube channel, and uh, what he sounds like in real life. Um, I've had the opportunity to sit in on some of his like private classes, the ones that cost a little bit of money, as well as his tied fly tying demos that he does just for the general crowd at these shows. And uh, he does a great job. But this book would be a great place to start to kind of get you some skills needed to move on to the next level. You can find a link for fly tying for everyone at the show notes of this podcast page over at castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Thank you.